This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Hello, and welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media podcast about all things in print. I am your host, Stuart in L.A., and I am here to talk to you, very excited, all month long, about Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter. Over at our sister podcast, NowPlayingPodcast.com, Jacob, Arnie, and I will be looking at the five films that have featured this iconic movie villain. But although over there I'm the big expert, because I've seen all the movies, I realize I haven't read any of the source novels that inspired these movies, so I decided... Much like I did last time with Philip K. Dick, I would read the source material concurrently with us screening and talking about the films and share my thoughts with you on the original work right here, the books and nachos. And word up, I am definitely going to be spoiling the hell out of everything. There, there are tons of plot spoilers and character details you may not want to know if you haven't seen the films or would just like to approach them fresh. So just be aware that I have uh, no qualms about talking about every detail uh, that strikes me in these books. So I really relish the ability to share with you now my thoughts and impressions of Red Dragon. It was written in 1981. It was Thomas Harris's second novel after Black Sunday, a terrorist thriller. It involved police and was police procedural, but not forensic. It it had a different bent to it entirely. And of course, it didn't have Lecter. Red Dragon is the source material to inspire Manhunter, our first episode in the Now Playing series. So if you're wondering where that book connects to it, it is Red Dragon. It's also the source material for the 2002 Red Dragon. This book was actually filmed twice, with two different Lecters portraying him. The story of Red Dragon actually concerns itself more with Will Graham, who is a criminal profiler who is so good at his job, he actually, in order to catch killers, starts to emulate them. And, you know, he's not committing any homicide, but he becomes more erratic and more dangerous as the novel progresses. And it scares him how deep he goes into their psychosis until the distinction between his personality and theirs is almost eradicated. It's Will's story, and he's coming out of retirement to find another serial killer. But the man who's going to help him catch that killer is Lecter. And of course, my number one concern as I was reading the novel is how are we going to perceive as readers who have presumably, back in 1981, would have had no opportunity to see him on screen, how would we see him in our mind? It's a fascinating question. And there are a few details. It is part of Thomas's Harris's style that he's very sparse in description. And really all that we know about Lecter is that he's small. Many times he referred to as life, small, neat, small white teeth. There's always an emphasis on these small white teeth and a smile. Maroon eyes that reflect the light in tiny pools. There's one thing about Lecter that makes him stand out as a freak, as a unique, as someone that you would pay attention to otherwise, because for the most part, these descriptions are unassuming, an unassuming, unthreatening man. 
But he does have on his left hand, and I think this is only in the books. I don't know that the movies have ever tried to portray this. I'm definitely going to be watching. He has a sixth finger. He has two middle fingers on his left hand. And I'm not exactly sure why or or what caused the phenomenon, but it's just this small detail that Thomas Harris uses to make you know that this guy is special. Because otherwise, we don't get too much. It's impossible to know, based on this book, exactly what we are to look at, other than it's unassuming. Something that you would not think of as being so malevolent. And that's kind of Lecter's key, right? You know, it isn't that he is the most physically imposing person. It is that he insidiously works his way inside your mind. And here, he's working his revenge plot against Will Graham because that was the criminal profiler that put him away. At the start of Red Dragon, he is already in a jail cell, and we never see him free at any given point. But he is planning, if not exactly a breakout, a revenge plot by pitting this new killer against Will Graham's family. Now, Will is there presumably to get Lecter's perspective on things. Keep in mind, this man is a noted thinker. He actually is still published in medical journals. He is a, if not practicing, a legal psychiatrist, (laughs) which is kind of a joke in of itself. And so, Graham is kind of seeking therapy from the guy. He is hoping that this guy can help him figure out where he needs to start with these two cases, because this new killer is striking entire families. At first, he took out a a family called the Jacobis on June 28th. It's a Saturday night, a full moon in Birmingham, Alabama, and he slaughtered everyone, father, son, and children, all murdered in similar fashion, slitting of the throat, a gun as well was involved, but they were all arranged with mirror shards in their eyes to watch him perform grotesque acts on the mother. The identical crime was committed one month later, one lunar cycle later, on the Leeds family. July 26th in Atlanta, Georgia, he breaks into another house and does the exact same thing to him. And so you really have to have Will Graham explore that methodology and understand the link because these two families didn't know each other. There's no obvious link between the Kobe's and the Leeds. There's no reason to think that it was a personal attack. And how would a killer know to strike and be successful and taking out entire families in this matter. It's what Will Graham has to do. And he does so out of obligation, out of nobility. We like this character because he's self-sacrificing. He's actually out of the force. He doesn't work for the FBI anymore. And he's not on their payroll. He's a mechanic retired to Florida. And he's got a long knife scar from his left hip to his right rib cage, left by Lecter. That's the thing that reminds him how dangerous his work is and how deadly it is. The woman that he's with, uh, she has a son from another their marriage. He's trying to be a father to him and not entirely succeeding. You get the sense that there's tension at home and that he feels like he would rather be there to work through it, but it's unresolved business. I think that Lecter is unresolved business for him, and I think the idea that someone could be striking families and killing entire families is ruining the idea that he could create a family life for himself either. If he has the skills to catch this guy, he should use it. And that's certainly the way that his old boss, Jack Crawford, kind of wheedles him into taking the job and getting into this killer mindset. So this is very different than how I remember 
the dynamics of Silence of the Lambs working. That's my sort of go-to frame of reference. It's the movie that I've seen the most out of all the Lecter movies. Is I remember Clarice and Lecter having a dialogue because she thought that he could come up with the clues and see things in a way if she shared the case file to allow her to, to catch Buffalo Bill. But here, it really, it's, it's overtly stated by Lecter himself. Will is just trying to get the scent back. If he is around Lecter, it triggers old habits, and he can get into that mentality. He doesn't really ask Lecter for advice about, hey, how did they get in? How did not? He just needs to be around the right company, because being a mechanic in Florida, he's just not in the mindset to be doing this yet. Trouble is on the horizon when these early dialogues with Lecter get photographed by a reporter named Freddie Lowndes, and he works for a nationally publicized rag. I guess you could equate it to the National Enquirer. It's called The Tattler, and he actually has been following Will Graham's career ever since he caught Lecter, even snuck into the hospital room and apparently took a photograph of his colostomy bag because he was gutted and couldn't use the bathroom normally for a while. So we're told early that Freddie's kind of scuzzy because what he goes through to get the story, maybe it's not that different from what Will goes through to catch his killer, but it's all for his own benefit and financial gain. You don't get a sense that it's good that we know these kind of graphic details about colostomy bags and all as the reading public. And Freddie's going to get his. He's actually the reason that the three different principles get connected. He is sort of the catalyst for everything because as Will's going through the house and Lecter is stewing his jail cell and using his phone privileges to find out where Will is now living, where his wife and adopted son are in Florida... By publishing these pictures and stories in the Tadler, the real killer is now learning who is hunting him, and he is starting a correspondence in code with Lecter, describing himself as an avid fan. This new killer of families is actually communicating with Lecter and saying that, I'm sorry that you got bad press. I do too. They have sort of a strange sort of empathy. You know, it's two killers that felt alone and isolated by their psychopathology. But now, because of this sleazy tabloid, now have a forum to talk about. You know, this is pre-internet, so there's no chat room for these guys. They have to do it in code, in print. And it takes a little while for Will Graham and Crawford to figure out what's going on. And even longer for them to figure out how to manipulate that. So it's a weird bind for Crawford and Graham. They've got to figure out how best to exploit the situation. Do they let Lecter write his code before they have it figured out? And they let it go to print and then saw crack his code and find out that he said, Grand home in Marathon, Florida, save yourself, kill them all. So now, in trying to protect his family by killing this family killer, Graham has actually put his family right first and foremost in the firing line. This killer could target them next, and Lecter is urging him to do so. Will the avid fan follow through with that. That's the suspense. And it changes Graham. I would say that this gets him hardened and he starts to realize the stakes at play. And not liking Lowndes anyway, he really sets up Lowndes to take the fall so that he can get the guy. He sets him up as bait. They take a picture together and so that when the killer reads the story and reads some of the things they're writing about him, that he is going to want to go after this journalist. It's essentially summed up later when Lowndes is captured and killed that Graham is the one that 
kind of pulled the trigger on him. He allowed Lowndes to die so that they could get closer to the Tooth Fairy. Now, up to this point, this story feels very similar to the way that Silence of the Lambs, the movie, was structured for me. That there was three principal characters. That you had the investigator, that you had Elector in the cage, sort of as mentor or threat, and then you had this run-amuck killer. But once the Tadler storyline really takes root, and we can now meet the killer from beyond the scope of what Graham has put together in his criminal profiles. We meet him as Francis Dollarhide, a film developer. I would say the novel really, really changes, and it no longer feels like an equilateral triangle in which all three characters are equally important and a part of the story. It really becomes the Francis Dollarhide Tooth Fairy show from this point on, because we go into tons of backstory, and this is stuff I don't remember from the other movies. Perhaps it's there. It has been a while since I've seen Manhunter or Red Dragon, but there is all of this backstory about why Francis Dollarhide became this killer of families. And it's fascinating. Don't get me wrong. I really like the conflicts here. You know, he was born at the end of the Depression, an unwanted child. His mother was embarrassed by his deformities and didn't want him in the first place and did not give her name in the delivery room. And it takes a while, but eventually Dollarhide does end up back in the care of his biological grandmother. And the reason why she knows that he is of her blood is because she also has a mouth deformity. They share a hair lip and an unusual teeth structure. And so she's the one that really raises him after age six. And she loves Francis as much as she hates her own biological daughter, who's gotten snooty. She's married a politician and, you know, she has this coveted life that the grandmother and Francis would like to have. And so they set about a campaign to actually harass and punish and humiliate her, that the daughter's husband is in politics, and every rally that he speaks at, every time he goes out there on the campaign trail, the grandmother and Francis are there to humiliate him, to remind people, to let people know that there is a bastard offspring that this noble man is ignoring, and that his wife sired out of their marriage. And I think this is key, because I think this sets up the reason why Francis wants to target families. You know, he isn't just trying to kill women in his adult life when he is becoming the serial killer. He is really targeting whole families, and I think it's really here where he started to covet and despise idealized, perfect nuclear families, as it were, because there they were up on the podium in his face, a part of his blood, but he's not good enough to really share the stage with them. And the grandmother gets a little crazy. I I think the scenario is a little bit like Psycho, Norman Bates and his mother. I think that's what Dollarhide and his grandmother's relationship gets to be an insane woman who a child is taking care of and who doesn't have all their faculties to begin with and so he's sick but he's trying to help someone who's even sicker and I think that feeds into the later psychosis. It really gets him fixated on uh, her set of dentures which actually becomes his weapon of choice when he breaks into the houses later when he's in the Jacobi's when he's at the Leeds place. His signature move, really, is that he wants to bite the women and leave a tooth impression on them. This is the grandmother's dentures that he's wearing as he's doing this. But all this backstory, really, it is so much of the second half of the novel. And I think it's sad that Graham sort of drops out of the picture as he is becoming more in tune with Francis. We aren't seeing him as much as Francis. We're seeing him descend in alcoholism. His wife has to go into a witness protection program, so he's not around. 
around her and she goes back to Montana and, and he's more and more alone and left more and more w- into the thoughts and empty rooms where the families used to live and it's just not an active character anymore. He is reacting to other things and he is becoming depressed and the active character, the one that we really are fascinated with is Francis Dollarhide because Lecter also drops out of the picture too. What else can he do? He's told the Tooth Fairy to go kill Graham but the Tooth Fairy actually looks down on this. He was a fan of Lecter but he saw this as weakness. He saw this as fear and he does not want to be afraid anymore. His transformation in the story is to become the Red Dragon. There is a painting by the poet William Blake done in the mid-1800s, one specifically called The Red Dragon and the Woman Clothed with the Sun. Now, I don't know really the origins or the history of this painting, and I don't think Dollarhide does either. Francis simply was visually impressed with it, and inside of it, through his mental illness, he wants to be the dragon that's subsuming this innocent woman in the painting. It's sort of a strange, psychotic goal of his, and he goes so far as to actually fly to New York, see the painting on display, pretend to be some art historian so that he can actually get up close to the painting and eat it. (laughs) He actually uses the teeth, grandma's teeth pop him in again, and to eat the painting so that he is now the dragon. And this inner dialogue he has with the dragon, the mental illness, it's the schizophrenia if you will, because it is a whole separate voice that's telling him to do this, is really, again, a big character in the story. The the most interesting thing that's going on here. But Lecter's out of it. His attempt to get Graham's family hurt only ended up with him being shunned, and Graham is in a drunken stupor and pouring over the evidence again and again. And we now know who it is, so we really want to stay with Dollarhide, and we want to see if he is going to fully transform, because we're given the indication in the last hundred pages, he might actually be saved. There is a woman that comes into his life. He works at a film developing company. That's actually how he finds his targets, we find out, is that back in the early 80s, people still shot Super 8 film, and it needed to be developed. And even though you'd bring it into your local grocery store to do so, they'd all mail it into a central location, and that central location is Gateway Labs in St. Louis. There's a blind woman that works there, naturally, in dark rooms. What difference does it matter to her? And Dollarhide sort of gets a crush on her, and starts to date her, starts to feel normal about her, and the dollar hide half of him would like to stay with her and see where this goes. The red dragon side of him is what pushes him to get rid of her and to continue on with his mission. They've found another family, and red dragon demands that he complete his task and go kill them. So that's the push and pull of the the last half of the story. By the time Graham figures this out, they get there, the house is burned down and the blind woman who has been in peril is rescued in time and there is a body of someone with a tooth deformity inside. But it has been set up earlier that there is a man with a tooth deformity, a mouth deformity, down the road that works at the gas station. And through sort of a stretch of imagination, we find out that that man was killed, put in its place, and that Dollarhide slash the Red Dragon is still on the loose. And for the last 25 pages of the story, there's one more climax of Dollarhide going to Marathon, Florida, and fulfilling what Lecter asked him to do in attacking Graham and his family. And so there is payoff for what Lecter has done. And you really get the sense at this point, it's a last desperate stab. He knows that he can't continue to go on and do the methodology of finding new families. He's not going to be able to go back to Gateway Labs and work again. He's not going to be able to go back to the blind woman. Reba will have nothing 
nothing to do with him, obviously, now that she knows what he really is. He can only hope to hurt Graham, and he can only hope to do so by fulfilling what Lecter has put into his head. And interestingly enough, when the attack happens, Graham is wounded really, really badly, and it falls for Graham's wife to Molly to really finish the deed. Uh, The fight continues on into the house. She's the one that gets the gun. She's the one that really protects the family, and it's not clear for a little while whether Graham even survived. It looks like maybe Lecter got his wish and that the man that jailed him uh, got his comeuppance. But at the end of the day, Dollarhide is killed, Graham does live, and he does remain in Florida as a mechanic with his family, presumably to do no more criminal profiling or to go anywhere near Lecter's jail cell again. But there, of course, has to be one more conversation for it to feel satisfying as a Lecter story. Lecter does send Graham a note in the ICU. I'll go ahead and read the note just for some fun. Dear Will, here we are, you and I, languishing in our hospitals. You have your pain and I am without my books. The learned Dr. Chilton has seen to that. We live in a primitive time, don't we, Will? Neither savage nor wise. Half measures are the curse of it. Any rational society would either kill me or give me my books. I wish you a speedy convalescence and hope you won't be very ugly. I think of you often. Hannibal Lecter. Interesting parting words. A little less complimentary than what he says to Jodie Foster in the movie of Silence of the Lambs. But structurally, they they feel very much like similar stories here. But imbalanced. Because once Francis Dollarhide is introduced, we spend so much more time with him. It would be like watching Silence of the Lambs and then the second half of the movie being entirely spent watching Buffalo Bill building the well, how he moved in to Mrs. Lippman's, all of the extraneous stuff. It's interesting to know. And the kinds of things that a book can get away with telling us, but really don't move the plot forward. I feel like it would be hard for any movie to incorporate all of this backstory into a satisfying thriller, because it takes away from the thrilling part in answering who Red Dragon is. But the truth is, we got our fill of Red Dragon, but we're only getting started with Lecter. And of course, the next novel is the one that I'm most curious to read. It's the source material for one of my favorite movies of all time, Silence of the Lambs. We'll be talking about the book next week. Thanks for joining me. Keep reading. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is copyright 2011, Venganza Media Incorporated, all rights reserved.